There's a couple of sections of Genesis that I'll just tell you. From the very beginning, when I first laid out this book and thought about, okay, how are we going to do this and how is this all going to unfold? There's a couple sections in Genesis and I'm like, I do not want to talk about that. (laughs) I don't want to teach that. I don't even really want to study that and deal with that in church. But because we go through the whole book, we get all of it, the good, the bad, the ugly. And um, it just so happens that the, really the two sections that I would have rather had somebody else teach, um, they're back-to-back weeks, okay? But don't worry, Easter's coming, and we're going to celebrate when it gets to Easter, all right? So we've got these two um, sections of, of just heavy darkness. Um, I mean, the message title for today is The Sins of the Land, all right? Um, and we're going to cover these things. Um, and, but even the uncomfortable sections of the Bible have a purpose, right? It's in here for a reason. And there's a very good chance that we are the only church maybe in the world that will be teaching on this passage today. <laughs> but still, there's good value in it. And I think that even as we study some of these hard stories and some of these hard things that happen, um, I think that we can, we can learn from them. And I think God has something uh, for us out of it. That's why it's in the Word. That's why it's here. Um, so bear with me as we, as we dig into some of this section. You'll see why in a minute. Um, but to get you up to speed, especially if you haven't been here with us or you've missed a week or two, um, just to give you a recap, we've been working through the life of Jacob. All right, And Jacob and his family last week reached the border of Canaan. Canaan, the promised land that God had said, I'm going to give you this chunk of land. And, and just because God had promised the land to this family doesn't mean that Canaan was this, this pure, innocent community. He didn't choose Canaan to give Canaan to his people because it was another Garden of Eden. It wasn't the kind of thing where it was so, you know, this pristine, isolated place that no one had been. And and he he wasn't saying, yeah, I'm going to show you the hidden place that I have here in in this world that nobody else has been around. And so you guys will start all over from from scratch and you'll build this innocent, God-fearing community. It wasn't anything like that. Um, In fact, it was like any other place that is full of people that are doing their own thing apart from God. The land of Canaan, as we'll see here, was full of wickedness and and full of sin. It was full of people, all right? And as the, the family of Jacob and the household of Jacob now start moving into this land their lives are going to be impacted by the sins of the land that they're living in. All right? So that's where we're going to, that's where we're going to go here today. And, and let me pray for us one more time, briefly, as we get into studying the Word. God, we do pray that this morning, even though we, we deal with some hard topics here and ta- hard issues, God, I pray that you would teach us out of it. And Lord, I also pray that you would open up our eyes and our minds to understand how these these things impact us. I pray, God, that you would give us clarity into our own hearts today. Um, I pray, God, that if there are sins in our lives or ways that we're living that do not align with you, that today you would show us that in our hearts and you would allow us to be obedient to follow after you. So, 
to, so remove the, the scales from our eyes, remove the, the glasses that keep us from seeing clearly, and let us look at our own hearts today with you. Come alongside of each one of us and speak to us today and guide us today through your word. In your name, amen. All right, so we're in Genesis chapter 34, and we're going to look at the first four verses. Here's what it says. It says, now, now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had born to Jacob, went out to see the women of the land. Because remember, they just got here last week. They just moved here into this land of Canaan. And when Shechem, the son of Hamor the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her, he seized her and lay with her and humiliated her. And his soul was drawn to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob. He loved the young woman and spoke tenderly to her. So Shechem spoke to his father Hamor, saying, Get me this girl for my wife. All right, so stop right there. Here's what happens if you didn't get this, because it's kind of um, veiled a little bit in Bible language. Here's what's going on here. Dinah goes out, Dinah, the daughter of Jacob, she goes out and begins kind of mingling in the social scene. She's starting to meet the people, um, you know, maybe made some friends with some of the other young single girls in the area. They start hanging out together. They're, she's getting introduced to the different friends. Um, maybe a few, uh, attends a few parties and ends up catching the eye of this very prominent young man, Shechem. All right, it says he's a prince of the land. As we'll see here in a little while, he has a lot of influence already, even though he's a young single guy. He's got a lot of influence in this area. And basically, one thing leads to the next. Uh, partying probably got out of control, and Shechem ends up raping Dinah. That's what's being said here, all right? It's, it's kind of Bible language, but that's what, when he says he seized her and lay with her and humiliated her, he rapes her. Okay, that's what happens here. Now, as Solomon teaches us in the book of Ecclesiastes, there's nothing new under the sun. All right, so if you, you open this up and you read this, and you're like, are you kidding? This is in the Bible? Oh, yes, it's in the Bible. There's nothing new under the sun. Sin has always been around. Sin goes all the way back to the beginnings of humanity. And violence against women is horrible, destructive sin that goes all the way back to the beginning. All right? And, and later, when God would bring the law to the people of Israel, because the law hasn't even been established yet by God. Moses isn't even born yet, okay? Moses is the one that brings the law to the people. When God finally establishes that, uh, the law for people, God says if anybody rapes another person in this land, the, the punishment's death, all right? And God's opinion on that has not changed. It's, this, is, this is deep, deep sin, and in modern terms, as we look at this, we'd probably categorize this as date rape. All right? The, the same party scene that happened back then is the same party scene that happens now. Alcohol was probably involved. They're partying. They're together. Everybody's hanging out. It's not like uh, Shechem came and, and, you know, tracked her down in a dark alley. What's probably happening is, is things just keep progressing. They're all together, and this ends up taking place. And, and when it says here that she was humiliated in this encounter, it was against her will. It's the same kind of thing that we see on college campuses and in the party scene, in the clubbing scene today, right? This is a very modern topic here. This is a very common thing. 
And what's also common here is Shechem, who's a very worldly guy, he doesn't even think anything's really wrong with his behavior. He's like, well, I don't see what, what's the big deal, you know? Like one thing led to the next and we were all having a good time and, you know. So he doesn't even understand that there's anything wrong. In fact, that's what the, why the next verse shows us. He's infatuated with this girl. Um, it says that he loves her and he wants to marry her. And so he asks his father to go and make an arrangement with Jacob, her father. All right? Now in verse 5, here's what it says. Now Jacob heard that he had defiled his daughter Dinah, but his sons were with his livestock in the field. So Jacob held his peace until they came. And Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him. And the sons of Jacob had come in from the field as soon as they heard of it. And the men were indignant and very angry because he had done an outrageous thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter. For such a thing must not be done. But Hamor spoke with them, saying, The soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to him to be his wife. Make marriages with us. Give your daughters to us and take our daughters for yourselves. You shall dwell with us and the land shall be open to you. Dwell and trade in it and get property in it. And Shechem also said to her father and to her brothers, Let me find favor in your eyes, and whatever you say to me, I will give. Ask for me as great a bride price and gift as you will, and I will give whatever you say to me. Only give me the young woman to be my wife. So, completely oblivious to their sin, Hamor and his son Shechem come to Jacob in the family and they say, let's work this out. In fact, what we want you to do is we want you to feel welcome in our new community that you've just moved into. We want to assimilate you with all the rest of us. We want to, to marry, um, you know, uh, our kids will be your kids. Our land will be your land. Come on in. You're, you're welcome here. Join us. Be together with us. They have no idea that what Shechem has done is an outrage to them. No idea. Shechem, in fact, he thinks he's being generous and noble. He's like, oh, I, you understand, I really love this girl. Like, whatever you ask for a bride price, I'll be glad to give it. Not a problem at all. Anything that you demand, that's what I want to do. All right, and in verse 13, it says, And the sons of Jacob answered Shechem and his father Hamor deceitfully. Oh, surprise, surprise. It come, runs in the family, right? <laughs> because he had defiled their sister Dinah. And they said to them, We cannot do this thing to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised, for that would be a disgrace to us. Only on this condition will we agree with you, that you will become as we are by every male among you being circumcised. Then we will give our daughters to you, and we will take your daughters to ourselves, and we will dwell with you and become one people. But if you will not listen to us and be circumcised, then we will take our daughter and we will be gone. Now, if you remember, if you've been following through this story of Genesis, you might remember that circumcision was given to Abraham and his descendants as a physical sign that they were to be set apart people. 
He said, I'm going to give you this physical marking that you're going to mark every male in your tribe that is going to signify that you are different than everyone else in the land. You're going to be set apart from the other nations. Now, this is not the sort of bride price that Shechem and the other men in this region probably would have been expecting. But surprisingly, let's read verse 18. Their words pleased Hamor and Hamor's son Shechem. I'm guessing they didn't even know what he was talking about. Yeah, whatever that word thing is that you're doing, yeah, yeah, that sounds great, let's do it. All right, and the young man, but it says, and the young man did not delay to do the thing because he delighted in Jacob's daughter. Now he was the most honored of all his father's house. So Hamor and his son Shechem came to the gate of their city and spoke to the men of their city, saying, These men are at peace with us. Let them dwell in the land and trade in it. For behold, the land is large enough for them. Let us take their daughters as wives and let us give them our daughters. Only on this condition will the men agree to dwell with us to become one people. When every male among us is circumcised as they are circumcised, will not their livestock, their property, and all their beasts be ours? Only let us agree with them, and they will dwell with us. And all who went out of the gate of his city listened to Hamor and his son Shechem, and every male was circumcised. All who went out of the gate of his city. Now these guys had an extraordinary ability to persuade other people. That's all I can make sense of this, all right? Um, I mean, talk about having some, some, some clout. Um, the old saying, you know, they could sell ice to an Eskimo, right? This is another level above that or below that, depending on how you want to look at it, right? Um, but the idea that their lives would be greatly enhanced by absorbing Jacob's household and wealth into their community outweighed the physical discomfort that they'd have to endure. So they agreed to it. They were just like, this is a great opportunity. It's a little uncomfortable, but all right. If we're going to be able to expand what we have here, if we're going to bring wealth pouring into our city, then that's what we want. That's what we need. We want their livestock. We want their, their daughters. We want the money. We want all this. So, remarkably, strangely, weirdly, they agree to go through with it. And every male in the city went under the knife. All right? And here's, here's our story continues. Verse 25. And on the third day, when they were sore, two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, took their swords and came against the city while it felt secure and killed all the males. They killed Hamor and his son Shechem with the sword and took Dinah out of Shechem's house and went away. The sons of Jacob came upon the slain and plundered the city because they had defiled their sister. They took their flocks and their herds, their donkeys, and whatever was in the city and in the field. All their wealth, all their little ones and their wives, all that was in the houses, they captured and plundered. Now, to be very clear, what Shechem had done to Dinah was an abomination. It was wrong. It was, it was sin. It was wicked. But as we know, two wrongs do not make a right. And sin plus more sin does not equal righteousness. 
And that's what's going on here. Simeon and Levi come into the city and they commit abominable sins themselves. They do a horrible thing as well. They murder the men of an entire village and plunder it. Let's read on. Verse 30. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, You have brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and the Perizzites. My numbers are few, and if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. But they said, should he treat our sister like a prostitute? Okay, notice Jacob's focus here. He says it multiple times about me and me and my and I. What's Jacob worried about here? Now, as when this next verse pops up and it says, now Jacob spoke to his sons, I'm like, all right, here we go. Some justice is actually going to be laid down. No, 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 that's not what we get. Instead, we get Jacob focused on himself, worried about what's going to happen to him, and he starts this whole thing with his sons. Well, what now? What's going to happen? They're going to come after me. You guys did this, and it's going to impact me. I'm going to be affected by this. I'm going to... He doesn't say anything to them about... You guys are lunatics. Like, get out of the house. You're, you're monsters. You just murdered all these people. He doesn't talk about any of these things. He ignores it. I wish that what we saw here was that Jacob had the great wisdom and leadership of a man who knew God and followed him closely. But remember, Jacob is still in process. He's still trying to learn, and his fear is still driving him. God had rescued Jacob already from Laban. He had rescued Jacob from his brother Esau. But he's still afraid that God might abandon him at some point. He doesn't understand the faithfulness of God yet. And yes, he does rebuke his sons for the horrible crime, but not because it was murder, but because of he was worried that it would come back on him. And here's other, another thing I want you to notice here in the way that the sons respond both Simeon and Levi were just as oblivious to their sin as Shechem had been to his sin. Honestly, when Shechem rapes this woman, he just thinks it's just part of being a young guy. Boys will be boys, whatever. That's, that's his thought. These guys come in here and they're like, oh, we're going to kill the town because, you know, that's what they did. That's what they get. That's, that's what they deserve. But they're oblivious to their own sin. In their mind, their actions were justified. Now, before we go too far down the path of condemning the characters in the story, it's important to recognize that all of us can be deceived by sin. Because that's what's going on here. We've got several characters in this story that are deceived by their sin. They're blind to what they're actually doing. All right? You're not really deceived if you know what's going on. You might be kind of tricked or you might be taken a little bit, but truly being deceived, it, that's when you don't know what's happening. You're completely unaware. And what we see here is, is a, a characteristic of sin. You know, as we, we've seen, as we've studied through Genesis, sin entered the world through the devil. One of the names of the devil that we see throughout Scripture is that he's a deceiver. Uh, Jesus called him the father of lies. 
He is a liar. What is a lie told for? It's to mislead somebody about something. That's what all lies are. That's what makes a lie. It's to mislead people down a different path. They think they're going one way when in fact they're going a different way. This is what sin does. Sin misleads us. It directs us in a path that we think we want to go down and we think it seems right and we think it seems good, but what it does is it always leads to death. Sin, when it's full grown, the Bible says, leads to death. Always. Now, we don't, thankfully, we don't usually take it all the way down the path to experience that kind of death, but sin leads to death. It's what happens to all of us when we get caught in our sin. We get deceived by it. And when we live in the world, which we do, it's very easy for us to become desensitized and numb to sin. Okay, that's one of the hardest things, I think, for Shechem here. Shechem didn't know God. Shechem didn't know anything about it. He just lived like everybody else in his area, in his community. To him, he goes and rapes somebody and doesn't even know what's wrong. All right, he was numb to it. He was desensitized to it. And for us, when we live in the world, it's easy for us to come the same way. Pretty soon, we start reflecting like the world around us. We start talking the same way the rest of the world talks. We think the same way they think. We do the things that they do. We, we justify ourselves for all kinds of reasons. We will rob and steal and cheat and manipulate just like everybody else around us because we're soaking in it. And instead of comparing our lives to what God has taught us through his word, we often compare ourselves to other sinful people. Shechem could have probably told any of us, well, I know lots of guys that have done this. They, they do this, and it's not a big problem, not a big deal. What's, what's the big deal? Simeon and Levi decided that Shechem and everyone he knew were wicked, that they were all rapists who deserved to die. But even if that were true, it made them murderers in the process. And they didn't see that part. All they could do is look at somebody else and say, well, they're, they're wicked, so therefore they should die. They didn't understand what was even happening in them. And instead of repenting at the sins that they had committed, they just hardened their hearts and justified their sins. Listen to what the New Testament says to Christians about the deceitfulness of sin. All right, This is to Christians. This is to you guys who are Christians here today. This isn't to whoever. It's to Christians. Hebrews 3, 12 and 14. The verse will be on the screen for you. It says this. Take care, brothers and sisters, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Here's what we've learned in Genesis. We've learned that all of us, every human being, we start with a sinful nature. All right? This is important to understand because this is a big philosophy of, of understanding how the world works and how people function in it. All right, some people 
uh, will look at the world and they say, no, no, people start good. They're mostly good. And occasionally, you know, as life goes on, they, they kind of decline a little bit. And there can be hard things that happen in life that kind of, you know, make them wicked or sinful. Right? That's one way of looking at it. What the Bible describes is, no, that's actually not how it works. The way it works is we all start as sinners, and then we're trying to deal with that sin, and we're trying to get to this place where we put some of those things off, and we now become these good people. And so it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a different kind of a process that's, that's taking place. It's this up and down thing, all right? Rather than you start really good, and yeah, you decline, and the, the really wicked ones get really low, but you know, for most people, they kind of stay up here in this, this generally good sense, but no, what, what the Bible describes is that we're warped and bent toward sin from the very first day. And what, what we also learn in Scripture is that Jesus came to break the power of sin. So if you've got sin, you start with sin, we couldn't do it. We tried this whole self-improvement process. We tried to figure it out. We tried to get rid of our sin and become totally righteous. We tried to earn our way into heaven. We tried to do what we want to do to try to say God's now going to welcome me in because I'm so good. But we can't. And so what the gospel says is, so God saw us and in love toward us said they can't do it on themselves by themselves. Instead, I'm going to come in the flesh, in the person of Jesus, and I'm going to break the power of sin so that that sin no longer has power over them. Okay, that's, the, that's what the good news of the gospel says. But even though Jesus came and broke the power of sin, he didn't remove it from the earth. That won't happen until the Bible describes that all things will be made new. We still live in a fallen world. We still live in a place where sin happens. So, we've got a couple options. Do we say, okay, well, that's great. Jesus came and he broke the power of sin, so now how am I supposed to live life? Well, I mean, you know, when in Rome, do as the Romans. Like, I might as well just live like everybody else because he's taking care of it and he's going to deal with it. I might as well continue to sin. No, that's actually not what it is. In Ephesians chapter 4, Verse 20 to 24, it says, That is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. To put off your old self. That's the sinful nature. That's the part that we start with. Put that off, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through, there's the word again, deceitful desires. And to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and put on a new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. These people here in our story in Genesis, they didn't have the benefit of knowing Jesus. He wasn't there yet, but we do. And Jesus has taught us that there's a new way to live when a Pharisee named Nicodemus came to Jesus and asked him, what am I supposed to do? How is salvation supposed to come to me? Jesus told him something that was revolutionary for him to hear, and it still kind of sounds weird to us. He said, you've got to be born again. You've got to start over. You don't take this, this old self, this old person that was born with sin, and try to fix that. It's already broken. He says, instead, what you need to do is you need to be born again. Start fresh have a new life, a new person. 
That's where I'm going to work from. We're called to, to be born again, get a new start, a new way to be human. That's what we're doing here today. We're trying to learn his way of how to put on and keep on that new self. Now, I'd expect chapter 35 to begin with the verse, and after these events, God said to Jacob and his family, I'm done with you people. <laughs> That's what I would expect to see in chapter 35. Um, uh, you know, but it's not what is recorded. Instead, what we see is the Old Testament version of finding new life in God by starting over. All right, read it. Um, verse 1, it says, And God said to Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there. Make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. Now, if you recognize that place, Bethel, it's because we've already seen this in the story. All right, Bethel um, was, was that same spot where Jacob had seen the ladder to heaven. Um, if you remember that, 20 years ago. And after he had this, this vision in the night, he had put his head down on a rock to sleep, which I told you that's pretty wild that these guys could do that. They were tough. Sleeping on a rock, he has this vision, and, and, and God appears to him and speaks to him and says, I'm going to bring you back to this place, and I'm going to make um, of you a great nation and all these things. And so when Jacob wakes up, he's just like, this is the house of God. I like came and went to sleep on his doorstep, and I didn't even know it. And so then he goes through this ceremony, he sets up a pillar, and he's like, I'm calling this place Beth-El, which means house of God. And this, I'm going to come back to this spot someday. Well, 20 years later, here he is. He's come back to this very place. God has told him to go back to this spot. And do you see what God's saying in this? He's telling Jacob, I want you to start again. I want you to come back to my house. Spend some time with me. Let's get together. Let's be together here. Make an altar. Worship me. Dwell here for a little bit. And let's begin again. And it says there in verse 2, So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, Put away the foreign gods that are among you, and purify yourselves, and change your garments. Then let us arise and go up to Bethel, so that I may make there an altar to the God who answers me in the day of my distress, and has been with me wherever I have gone. So they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods that they had, and the rings that were in their ears, and Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree that was near Shechem. It wasn't only Simeon and Levi that were wicked in Jacob's household. It wasn't that it was just the two of them that were bad and everybody else was righteous and following after God. That's not what was happening. The idolatry and the false religions of all the places that they had journeyed had seeped into this tribe of people. And at this point in the story, it probably is a tribe. It's no longer just a single family in a household. They keep expanding and growing. It's probably 100 people or more at this point. Right? And so this group of people that are traveling around as a household together, um, the, the sins of the land had become their sins. They had, had brought in all the, the idolatry that had been all around them. And so Jacob calls them to put away the foreign gods. Um, if you've read the Bible before, um, you're going to see over and over that the people of God, God is always calling them back to 
Put away the idol, idols. Put away the foreign gods. Tear down the high places. Come back to me. Come back to me. Come back to me. It happens over and over and over from generation to generation to generation. You know why? Because that's how we are as people. We need to come back to God. We need to periodically, often cleanse ourselves. We need to take a look at our lives. It's, it's good to do every day. One of the things that I don't always do, but, but sometimes I do, is at the end of a day, I try to reflect back on my day. And in a time of prayer with the Lord, I try to say, okay, God, what happened in my day? You know, the, the ancient church people called it a prayer of examine, where you go back and you look at the, your day. And you, you kind of walk through it, just remembering it with God. And say, Lord, where did I go wrong? And where did I go right? Should I have answered that person this way? Should I have done that? Should I have said this? Should I? And it's, it's an opportunity just to once again go back and take a look and say, where am I? Where is this whole soul? What, what should I be doing? What can I do differently? And that's a beautiful time to just finally get a good night's rest, right? Put those things at, at ease. If, if it's the kind of thing where God puts it on your heart and say, you know what, you need to call that person back tomorrow. Or maybe it's tonight, I don't know. And you need to set that right. And then it's an opportunity for me to say, I repent of that, Lord. I don't want to do that. Help me do better tomorrow. <laughs> and then I get to go to sleep. Right? It's just a, a way to, to do this. And that's what he's calling them to here. He's, he's calling them to put away the sins, put away the foreign gods, and, and get things right. He calls them to purify themselves. He even says, change your clothes, even, as a reminder that, hey, you're making a shift. And as a group, they're saying, we're all going back to God. It's not just our, our patriarch Jacob that's going back to God. We're all going to turn back to God alone. Now, I'd be a little bit surprised, maybe, if some of you had some, you know, carved idols back at home that you currently worship. All right? It could happen. Um, but in most cases, in our community, the idols being worshipped are things like money, sex, and power. Those are usually the a derivative of one of those three, are usually the idols that are very common in our community. We might not have little carved idols for it, but we have other things um, that, that we put in the place of God. And an idol is anything that we worship that is not God. And an idol can, can come out of anything. And here's the thing. Whether or not they believe in God, or whether or not they've put their hope in Jesus as their Savior, all people worship. I don't know if you realize this, but all people worship. Even the atheists and agnostics worship. We can't help it. As human beings, we worship things. And if we're not careful, the things that we worship are idols. And all of us are drawn to the idols of the land. But if you recognize that your heart has wandered, it's time to repent and return to the Lord. If that resonates with you, I usually share this book title, I don't know, a couple times a year. But there's this book called uh, Counterfeit Gods by somebody named Tim Keller. And um, it says there, the subtitle, The Empty Promises of Money, Sex, and Power, and the Only Hope That Matters. He really goes into this. 
So if this is something that you're like, hmm, I don't know about idols in my own life. Oh, yeah, well, read this book. <laughs> You'll find a few, most likely, all right? Now, let's, let's move on here. Um, we're going to finish this chapter um, pretty quickly here. And here's what it says, 35, chapter 35, verse 5. So they've, they've hidden these um, idols, and it says in verse 5, And as they journeyed, a terror from God fell upon the cities that were around them, so they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. Remember, they had just killed, wiped out a whole village. And so that was Jacob's fear, right? Oh, they're going to come after us now. Well, a fear of God falls on them. And Jacob came to Luz, that is Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan, and he and all the people who were with him. And there he built an altar and called the place El Bethel, God, the house of God, because there God had revealed himself to him when he fled from his brother. And Deborah... Rebekah's nurse died, and she was buried under an oak below Bethel, so he called its name Alon Bakuth. We'll get back to that. And God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Padan Aram and blessed him. And God said to him, Your name is Jacob, but no longer shall your name be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel. And God said to him, I am God Almighty, be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac, I will give to you, and I will give the land to your offspring after you. Then God went up from him in the place where he had spoken with him. And Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he had spoken with him, a pillar of stone. He poured out a drink offering on it and poured oil on it. So Jacob called the name of the place where God had spoken with him, Bethel. Now that that they were back on God's path, we see him move on their behalf. Uh, The fear that had consumed Jacob, like I said, um, it was a waste of time, really, because God brought a fear on them to protect them as they went on. Now, if you're wondering, um, some of you, you skimmed right over verse 8. It's a little bit curious. For those of you who are real Bible nerds and you recognize all these names. Deborah was Rebecca's nurse, all right? Um, likely, this Deborah was the same nurse who had come with Rebecca, that was Jacob's mom, um, from the, the house of, of, of uh, Laban and all of that, that re- those relationships back there. All the years ago when Abraham had gone sending his servant um, for a wife for Isaac. So how did she end up here with Jacob now? That's what you should ask. Wondering like, wait a minute, Deborah, how does this happen? We don't know. (laughs) I got no answers for you. Alon Bakuth, that that weird name, means oak of weeping. Deborah was probably like a second mother to Jacob. So whether or not she had just lived in this area and as they're coming back into Canaan and Jacob goes and finds her because, you know, it's this little old lady who had helped raise him and, and he comes and meets her and says, come with us. Um, whatever happened, um, she passes away and her death impacted him. That's why he calls it just an oak of weeping because he was so mourning so heavily for her. But then the next little thing that we saw there is that what God does, and this is how God works with us a lot when he starts us over, when he gives us a fresh start. What God does is he reminds us of all these things that we probably already know. He doesn't tell Jacob anything new here. 
In fact, what he does is he just goes back through kind of in sequence and says, here's all these things that I promised you before. I'm going to promise them to you again. I'm going to remind you of the truth that you need to know. Your name was Jacob because you're a cheat and a deceiver. That's what your name means. But remember when I sent the guy to wrestle with you? I changed your name to Israel, and that's the way it's going to be. Your name's no longer Jacob. Your name is Israel because you're going to be one who goes with God, right? So that's one of the things that he tells him. And then he goes on and he recounts again the the same thing that he had told him many times. says, the covenant, the promise that I made to Abraham and Isaac, your father and grandfather, it's still for you. I know you've gone through all of these episodes and all these crazy things happening, but it's still for you. I still love you. I still am going to walk with you. I'm still going to guide you. Yes, you continue to sin. Yes, you continue to blow it. But I still am with you. This is what God does with us when we come to the end of ourselves and realize I've blown it. What do you do when you sin a big one and you're like, oh, I really blew it? Are you one of the people that say, okay, I I sinned. I really, I got to figure this out. This is a pretty big one. So I probably can't go to church for three weeks, four weeks, maybe. I definitely am not going to pray, you know. I think it's probably still respectful that I maybe pray for my meal. So I'll say, rub-a-dub-dub, thank you for the grub, amen. I'll do something like that maybe. Or, oh, I know what I'll do. I'll do some like good, good servant things. Like I'll, I'll find ways to like help out in the community. My neighbor needs her, you know, yard mode. I should go do that. I'll, I'll do this. I'll make up, I'll do a few really good deeds. And then I'll come back to God. Because then at that point, maybe God won't be so mad at me. And then maybe God will say, all right, I guess. I've seen that you're really sorry for it. I guess I'll forgive this one too. Is that how you do it? It's not how you're supposed to do it. The way we're supposed to do it is when we blow it. When we sin, when we fall flat on our face, before you even get up off the ground, the thing you're supposed to do is say, hey, God, help. (laughs) Father, forgive me. I've, I've blown it. I've sinned against you. Forgive me. Cleanse me. And what the Bible said is, is that God has such a love for you and so much mercy and grace and forgiveness for you. Guess what? He's God. He already knows your sins. You're not hiding anything from him. He's not the God that you're going to appease by doing these good deeds. That's not the God of the Bible. That's not the God who we know. This is a God who loves you and wants to help you immediately. And all you're doing when you're wandering away for a while and trying to let things cool down, all you're doing is exposing yourself to more and more junk and more and more weakness and more and more failure. When in fact, God says, no, no, no. Come on back to me now. Let's get things right. Let's move forward now. So God reminds Jacob of all these things. You're part of the covenant. You're going to be a a great people. You're going to have a place. And Jacob goes through the same ceremony that he'd done the first time he came to Bethel. He sets up the stone pillar. He pours oil on it. This time he adds a drink offering and announces to the whole tribe, this is the house of God. This is Bethel, house of God. Now, I really wish... This is where the life of Jacob ends in Scripture. 
it's just, it's just right there. It's like finished. It's, it's the high point, right? Everyone's, everyone's been purified. They've gotten rid of their idols. They've had this fresh encounter with God. They've renewed a renewed hope in the promises of God, and they lived happily ever after. That'd be nice. But that's not how life works, is it? Because when we come to a high point with God, we still live in a fallen world. Bad things will still happen. Hard times will still come. And we have to choose to continue to walk with God through all of those things. But we're not alone. He goes with us and will be faithful forever. Almost done here, guys. Verse 16, it says, Then they journeyed from Bethel. And when they were still some distance from Ephrath, Rachel went into labor. That's Jacob's wife, remember. And she had hard labor. And when her labor was at its hardest, the midwife said to her, Do not fear, for you have another son. And as her soul was departing, for she was dying, that's how hard this labor was, she called his name Ben-Oni. But his father called him Benjamin, Benjamin. So Rachel died, and she was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. And Jacob set up a pillar over her tomb. It is a pillar of Rachel's tomb, which is there to this day. Rachel had been Jacob's true love from the very beginning. Remember, she was the one that he had worked the seven years for and then got deceived and had to work another seven years for her. Um, and her death broke his heart. Now, we know from Scripture that she was a beautiful woman, But what we also see here is it appears that she was also a bitter woman, even up to her death. She might have been beautiful on the outside, but there was bitterness inside. The midwife here tries to comfort her, telling her, well, you'll live on through your son because you're having another son here. And and let's let's try to look on the, the, the bright side. But she saw him as the son of sorrow. That's what that first name means, Ben Oni, the son of my sorrow. How'd you like that as your your name? It's hard. Jacob, however, he knew what it was like to have a cursed name. Remember? His name means cheater. (laughs) So he's like, I know what this is like. I'm not doing this to my kid. So he changes the name immediately and says, well, you say Ben-Oni, the son of sorrow. I'm going to say Ben-Yamin, which means the son of my right hand. That's like good, noble name. That's what I'm going to do. As we go on here, um, we're going to see now another shift. Israel, that's Jacob, remember. Here's the first time now he's going by Israel. It says in verse 21, And Israel journeyed on and pitched his tent beyond the tower of Adair. And while Israel lived in that land, Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard of it. Reuben was the oldest son of Jacob. Bilhah was the mother of two of his half-brothers. All right? See what's going on here? Yes, you thought it couldn't get grosser. It got grosser. It's incest is what's happening here. Um, Sexual sin. And what we're going to see, the reason this is is dropped in here and important, later we're going to see at the end of Genesis that Jacob will withhold inheritance from Reuben because of this event that happens right here. And it goes on, and it says, Now the sons of Jacob were twelve. There were twelve sons of Jacob. You're going to need to know that in the future. The sons of Leah, 
which is Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun. Then the sons of Rachel, which were Joseph and Benjamin. The sons of Bilhah, Rachel's servant, that's Dan and Naphtali. And the sons of Zilpah, Leah's servant, Gad and Asher. These were the sons of Jacob who were born to him in Padan Aram. And Jacob came to his father Isaac at Mamre, or Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, where Abraham and Isaac had sojourned. Now the days of Isaac were 180 years, and Isaac breathed his last, and he died, and was gathered to his people, old and full of days, and his sons Esau and Jacob buried him. It had been a very long journey, but now Jacob had come full circle and returned to his father's house. Isaac, that was his father, who never expected Jacob to return while he was alive. Remember, I mean, we go back in the story 20 years ago. Isaac thought he was on his deathbed and goes and he's putting his, his you know, things in order, life in order, because he's like, I'm about to kick the bucket here. Well, he doesn't. He lives all the way now till this point. He never thought he'd see, um, see Jacob again. He does. He gets a, a, a final opportunity to be with his son, and then he passes away. Rebecca, his mother, had already died. So sadly, when Rebekah ran Jacob off to protect him from her other son Esau, she never saw her son again. But Esau and Jacob, who have now been reconciled, they bury him together. What do we do with all this? Now you see why I thought these are hard passages to try to teach at church, right? What do you do with all this? Well, a a couple, couple things. Just as there was in this ancient time, we know that there's plenty of sin in our land today, okay? We have been scarred and wounded and jaded by the world around us, but you're not trapped in sin if you're a Christian here today. If we've put our faith and trust in him, then his work of breaking the power of sin over us is effective in our lives, And that's the life we get to walk in. We're still going to make mistakes. We're still going to stumble. We're still going to sometimes find ourselves in sin. I wish it wasn't that way. I wish I could tell you, once you trust Jesus, you'll never sin again. And you'll just become this righteous little super Christian. It doesn't work that way. We're, we're, We're still people that are in a fallen world. But I think that even though we we might still be deceived by sin and need to repent and return to his path, we're reminded today to walk in the new life that we've been given. Just because we live in a land of sin doesn't mean that we're, we're, we're destined to always fall into it. Doesn't mean that we can't walk in victory and we can't be changed. Because we can And for some of you here today, you might be at a spot where you're like, yeah, but I've got this thing that just won't go away, that I keep holding on to, that just won't go away. God can free you of those things. He can bring absolute victory and absolute freedom into your life. There's places in my life where he's done it. I know he can and will do it for you as well. So so what do you do? You check your heart. That's what we need to do today. I think all of us need to check our own hearts and say, to God, is my conscience clear before you, God? Am I living in a way of freedom? 
am, is there something that maybe I'm deceived? Maybe I have a blind spot. And I've just kind of said, well, this is just the way it is in the world, and I'm always going to live this way. But now maybe you're sensing a conviction from the Holy Spirit that's letting you know, no, that way of living, the thing that you're doing, maybe that, it needs to be broken here today. Is there anything that you're harboring in your heart that's between you and God? Have you got an idol tucked away in your pocket (laughs) that needs to be put away? Have you justified your actions just because, well, that's the way the world is. If you want the peace of God in your life, it requires giving God your entire life. You will never be at peace with God if you're hanging on to these other little things. You can't. And if you look around at other Christians and you talk to other Christians and you're like, I don't know why they're so full of joy and peace. I'm a Christian too and I don't seem to have the joy and peace that they have. Maybe there's something that's breaking relationship between you and God. And today is the day to get rid of that. As, a, as, as Peter said to the people um, in Acts chapter 3, when they came and said, well, what are we supposed to do? He said, repent therefore and turn back that your sins would be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. And I know that God wants to refresh you today and cleanse all of us from the sins of the land. Let's pray. God, we do thank you today for your word. And Lord, I pray that today we would experience the life that reflects you. A life that truly represents who we are in Christ that we are a new creation. I pray, Lord, that, that today, if there are any who are deceived by sin, that maybe think that what they're doing and how they're doing it is okay, and, and in your eyes it's sin, Lord, I pray that you would reveal that to them today. I don't want any of us to go through life carrying sin, carrying things that are keeping us from you and justifying it some way in our minds thinking that we're okay when we're not. And God, I'm, I'm so grateful that you reveal those things to us little by little in life. You don't dump all of our sins on our head and say, deal with it. Instead, you call us to just another step of obedience. And so today, Lord, if there's something in any of my brothers or sisters' hearts here that, that you're bringing to their mind, If there's anything here that they see and they sense, that they know that they need to lay down, today, Lord, I pray that you'd give them the courage, the confidence, and also just the the strength to lay that thing down. I want us to be a people that are pure before God. And that's so hard because I know the world that we live in. And I feel it myself. We all do. But Lord, we want to be right with you. And so Lord, today I pray that you would bring victory, that you would bring the, the cleansing flood, your Holy Spirit through the blood of Jesus Christ would just cleanse us of all unrighteousness, that we'd be right with you, that we'd know you, we'd know your peace. 
We'd know your joy. We'd know, know your love. We would find mercy in our own lives through your mercy, that we'd be people who are free, people that are confident in you, people that are walking your path and knowing it. Make us those people today, Lord, and do a work among us. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.